0: Okay, would you stand with me for our scripture reading this morning? Fairly short, but very, very powerful. These are Jesus' words to us now. They come from Matthew five, thirty-one and 32. Hear now God's word. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman, Commits adultery. These are God's words to God's people. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Okay, here we go. I've got one other uh, little reading I'm going I'm to give you in just a few minutes as well. The title of this sermon, I, I, I put a title on it, even though we don't have a bulletin. It's called Divorce. A Complex Subject. Or is it? There's a billboard out on Cherry Road. Maybe many of you all have seen it. It's paid for by a divorce attorney or, or by the very least an attorney uh, an attorney specializing in divorce. And yes, I do think there is a difference between. The billboard says at the very top of the, of the billboard itself, life is too short. Get a divorce. Yeah, that's going to be just the one that has to answer for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There he is and has been now for many years an attitude, well, if it doesn't work out, we can just get a divorce. I would bet over half or more of those who got married with that attitude did just that. They ended up getting a divorce. And yet in my lifetime, in fact, done so by one of our longtime senators in South Carolina, his name not mentioned, had to go out of the country to like Puerto Rico or somewhere. This was back in the 60s. Uh, to be able to get a divorce because there was a one-year waiting period in South Carolina before you could get a divorce. And and while divorces could have been granted in many generations past, it was often a long, drawn-out court situation to take place with boatloads of witnesses on both sides and all that kind of stuff. It was almost like a criminal trial to a certain extent. I almost wait now for drive through divorces, kind of like we have drive through chapels for marriage. Except with the divorce, I would imagine there are probably going to be two cars involved since, uh, in the drive through since the two probably wouldn't want to be in the same car at the same time. And I apologize if that sounds like I'm making light of the process, but quite honestly, I reckon I am. However, I want you to understand this. Divorce is a serious subject, one not to be taken light of, as as most things in the Scriptures are not to be taken lightly. Honestly, I have to say this topic is is maybe one of the more elusive subjects to get a really, really good grasp on. And it's one that is, in one direct way or another, spoken about in, in both the Old and in the New Testaments. Will we figure it all out this morning? I sincerely doubt it. If anything, we may muddy the waters for you even a little bit more. We see in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, a chapter partly dedicated to this subject. If you look at the subject, divorce, just divorce alone, in one form or another in the Bible, you'll find it discussed approximately 50 or more times. I counted roughly... Uh, 70 to 75 places where it was actually used, but it was done in multiple instances. Uh, Like Deuteronomy 24, for instance, was mentioned maybe five times. Now, there's really only about four verses, the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24 that are actually mentioned about divorce. And yet, it was used in different areas up to five, six different times. However, the fact that That the subject is talked about so often should grab your attention. Here we're given an example of, of what a messy divorce might look like in Deuteronomy 24 1 through 4. In fact, it really gets into multiple marriages and so on. Bottom line here is the basis of this passage is in, in verse 1. It says this. It says that if a man takes a wife and then finds no favor in his eyes for her because of some indecency in her. What does that mean? Some indecency. And then there's the basis for divorce, or at least it was in that day. That, that was all that, that a divorce had to be uh, centered on. Okay? But you understand this there were right and wrong ways to get divorces even thousands of years ago, okay? But, you know, I I think of it maybe, you know, we look at today's court terminologies and stuff like that, and I have to wonder if the terminologies now are, are that much different than they were thousands of years ago in the Scriptures. So let's dig a little bit deeper, though. Malachi 2, 13 through 16, essentially says this, For the man who doesn't love his wife, but divorces her, covers his garment with violence. Bottom line, I don't think God's very happy with divorce. Never has, never will. Genesis 2.24 says, he gave man and woman to each other for keeps, for richer, for poorer, yada, yada, yada. And we'll come back to the yada, yada, yada thing in just a few minutes. These are words that in a normal church setting wedding, they apply to marriage. And I think it's very, very important that we look at these terms here in just a short time. That's the ideal, okay? And yet, it got to the point because man wanted to have a divorce. A guy could get a divorce actually back in the the days of thousands of years ago if his wife fixed him a bad meal. That's all it took. And we thought our divorce laws were lax. Yet look at the attitude concerning marriage today. As I said earlier, there's an attitude of, well, if it doesn't work out, we can just get a divorce. In my opinion, and here's my opinion, okay, that's one of several things that we use today for basis for divorce that irritates God. My wife has the thought that she didn't get into marriage to get out of it. There are times, though, when I imagine if you asked her, she'd have been hard-pressed and thought, why in the world did I ever think that? But she didn't, and I'm thankful for it. But on the other hand, I had a secretary in Florida, great secretary, good friend. In fact, she and her husband are still some of the closest friends that we have today. Her husband was one, married once before. Steve had been married before. He got married about the age of, of 19, and it lasted roughly a year. He and his first wife, as the old song goes, they got married in a fever. Hotter than a pepper sprout, if y'all have heard that song before. Didn't take long or more than a few months to realize that he'd made a big mistake. They both had made a big mistake, so they were divorced. A few years later, Steve and Karen, again, my secretary, but well before she was my secretary, they got married. And Karen asked me many times what what I felt about the situation that they had. Were they both sinning because her husband had been married before? They are some of the best Christian people you are ever going to find on this earth. This question eight at both of them. And, and, and I tried to counsel her with on this uh, several different times over the years. Now on the one hand, as I said earlier, in, my, in my, earlier, my upbringing in the church, I grew up in a church that said divorce is voodoo. Divorce and die. Okay? It's an automatic. You might as well just hang it on up. Or at least that's how I remember it. The opposite, though, I had a a very dear ARP pastor friend answer this same question about divorce. And he was he was asked about it in a Bible study one time. And his answer was, well, I think the Lord just wants us to be happy. Frankly, I was a little surprised at the answer that he gave. Yes, he desires us to be to be happy. But at what cost? As I said, this is not a cut-and-dry subject to give a straight-out answer to. Not in my opinion, at least. I, I have some thoughts on the subject that I'll share with you and other things that I've researched as I was working on this sermon. And I'll talk about a little, a little bit about those as well in a minute. So let's look at today's passage, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Footnote here. All of the preliminary talk here was totally factual okay from here on it starts getting a little bit rocky it'll all be true but i suppose a lot of it will be up to someone's interpretation of what these words actually say but before we do that i want to give you an editorial let me say here there's a multitude of ways to look at divorce the ramifications of divorce are vast who did what to who who's wrong who's right who's the victim Those things oftentimes are decided before anything else is done. Let me say as well, divorce is something that is very difficult not to take sides on. Seems in one way or another, we've all invested, have a vested interest in the divorce of others. Could be friends, could be family, could be church family. And it can be incredibly difficult to not take one side or the other. Divorce, most of the time, will have a devastating effect on more than just the nuclear family. But they should be our first concern as the church. We just have to be careful not to fall into the he said, she said situation and be forced to voluntarily or involuntarily to take or pick sides. And yet, isn't it human nature to want to take up for or believe one over the other. I have a situation, <clears throat> without getting too personal about it, I have a sister and a brother-in-law in the middle of a divorce right now, and though it is very difficult not to take sides with flesh and blood involved, we're trying to stay as neutral as we possibly can stay. Not because we don't want to get involved, but because we believe it's the right thing to do. I've been personally blasted within my family because I didn't reach out to one and and try to hear from both sides. I'm too involved because it is family. I don't counsel family members. I have one time because they didn't have a church and I was really hoping to be able to get them to come. I'm still hoping, praying on that one. But I only had one time that I have ever counseled family members before they got married. I recommend, maybe even insist, that they get another pastor, that they have them counsel them, because I don't want to get involved with this. I am going to be biased, and I am not going to see things as clearly as I should. Divorce is no different here, again, in my opinion. Now, that may be something that a lot of people don't understand, but that's how I feel about it, and that's how I'm going to stay with it. Outside of personal situations, it's how we should attempt to do it in any sphere of life. Be there for them. Cry with them. Laugh in some instances with them. Take them out for lunch or dinner. But don't take sides. We as the church cannot afford to take sides. Now, let's look into what the Scriptures have to say. Well, As we look at Matthew 5, 31 and 32... To get a little bit more of a complete thought on divorce, we, we should also look at Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Now, we're not going to do that today, okay? That would really draw things out. But what I want you to do is when you get an opportunity, look at Matthew 19, the first 12 verses, and kind of parallel that with what's being said in Matthew 5. <clears throat> it alludes back to some of what we're going to be talking about. <clears throat> and honestly, chapter 5 has got enough this morning for us to deal with, so we're going to stick with our text. We see where Jesus is saying on the surface that any man who divorces his wife, except for a sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And then if she marries again, the man she marries is an adulterer as well. Bottom line here, marriage is to be taken seriously. I cannot Underscore that enough. Look in the scriptures how marriage is emphasized. In Revelation twenty-one nine, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the Spirit and the bride say, "Come." Revelation nineteen seven, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has been made, or has made herself ready. <clears throat> We know the Lamb is Christ, and the bride is His church. Well, it's just in the book of Revelation, right? Wrong. Ephesians 5, 22 and on is Paul's analogy between husband and wife being compared to Christ and the church. We've said before that marriage is an important thing. But when it's compared to Christ and His church, I think then we can see how serious This really is. And yet we live in a world of humanity. We live in a world of brokenness. A world, maybe a culture, of going out of our way to do the wrong thing when it would be easier to go and do the right thing. And then we're given a statement. When we're given a statement like Jesus, of all people, gave to us here, it should make us want to think twice about marriage and its importance. And maybe that's the point. But I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 7. This is going to be a key passage before we finish this morning. By the way, verses 8 and 9. Paul says here, if you can stay unmarried and control yourself. Now, as, as Brett said last week, we want to keep this as PG as we can. But what he's talking about is in a sexual way here, okay? If we can keep ourselves under control, good for you. Do it that way. But if you can't, get married. Yet even after this statement in verses 10 and 11 in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul virtually says the same thing that Jesus said in our reading for this morning. Confusing, isn't it? The fact of the matter here is that marriage must be taken seriously, as we have said and re-said and re-re-said today. I think part of what Jesus is saying here. In Matthew 5, and again, this is only my thinking here, okay? Divorce should not be a convenient way to get out of a marriage. Divorce is not, as I read in one place, an out so that one can have a do-over. Or after marrying, divorcing several times, they finally find their soulmate. Unfortunately, they're married to somebody else right then, so them and their soulmate have to get Uh, um, divorces from the families they're with now, breaking up two more families so that they can go live happily ever after or until they really find that soulmate. This time it will be forever. If that's the case, are you really looking at the comparisons of Christ and the church given to us in the scriptures? I don't think so. Now, here's where we're really going to get into my thinking, okay? <clears throat> I promised you this. So Here it comes. Listen carefully to these words. We use them in wedding ceremonies. I do every time. I, blank, take thee, blank. See, we could have gotten Sam and Sophia married today. Save somebody a whole lot of money, bro. <clears throat> to, te- to be my wedded wife or husband. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I pledge thee my faith. <clears throat> to have and to hold, meaning to love only her or him. Nowhere do I see in that whole statement that it's okay if you want to get out of it because it doesn't work out. Here we go now. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In other words, when we make the vow before God, we are promising Him to give our very beings to that other person in all things. No matter if you've got $10 million or $0.10. Cents. In sickness and in health. These might just be the most difficult words to agree to and to promise. I mean, after all, we all are going to live to be 90 and no one is going to get sick, right? Wrong. And we have to be ready to take care of each other, not only when we have a cold, but when we have this stupid virus we're dealing with. When we might, God forbid, have some debilitating disease or maybe even a terminal disease. Are you going to stand with your partner and fight? Or are you going to leave and run away? That is part and parcel Of what loving and cherishing is really all about. Along with providing for in physical. Again, sexual, mental, emotional, and and spiritual ways. And how long is this contract good for? Till death do us part. I believe 1 Corinthians 7, 12, 16 are key verses for us. Listen to these. As a matter of fact, can I get somebody to read these so I can save my voice for just a couple of minutes? 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Anybody want to give it a shot? Go on once. Go on twice. Thank you. Let's see. 7, 12. Right there. 12 through 16. To the rest... I say I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Specifically in verse 15, the unbeliever leaving. I believe that this term leaving or abandoning, let's say, can pertain to a physical, financial, emotional, sexual or spiritual way. Abandonment can occur even when you have a house full of people. I'm thinking that my pastor friend that I told you about earlier said that he believed that God wanted us to be happy. I have to believe he was saying those words with 1 Corinthians 7 in mind. Otherwise, for some of us, happiness might not occur until the sixth or seventh time down the aisle. Now, is this a one-sided situation? I I don't think it is. I think abandonment can be a two-sided coin. That's why it is so important that both male and female in the marriage relationship agree to love, honor, cherish, and all the other things that we just talked about. No marriage is ever 50-50. This is one thing that I tell people in in counseling when they get ready to get married. It's not a 50-50 thing. It's a 100-100 thing. You can't give half of yourself to make it work. On the other hand, you can't make it 200 to nothing either. One person cannot carry the load, nor can it be 150 to 50. It has got to be 100, 100. But one more point to muddy the waters here, if you will. Look at First Peter 3, 1 and 2. Notice what Peter encourages wives to do, if at all possible. <clears throat> I think husbands in this day and time might listen to these words as well. Wives In the same way, be submissive so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of our lives. So win them over to Christ through your actions. I'd say perhaps no matter whether the marriage is saved or not. And this is more or less what I told my secretary. And her husband. This, this last little thing right here. I go back to something that Paul says in an earlier verse. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7. Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say, this is Paul's opinion here. It's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. <clears throat> there are some who, once they divorce, they never remarry. Spouse may have gone on and remarried. Really doesn't matter. But they never do for whatever reason. Many may believe in one marriage per person is what Christ teaches. And that's fine. I think that's something that must be prayed about, must be discussed with your pastor, along with a lot of thinking and prayer individually on the matter. I did read one article. I was doing research, actually. This was in a sermon. And it was said that 1 Corinthians 7 was a loophole for divorce. A term that was actually used in a sermon. I do not like that terminology at all. Just my thought again. In closing this sermon though, whereas in the Old Testament divorce seems to be, seemed a whole lot easier to occur, suffice it to say God was not happy with it at that time. In the New Testament, He's no happier about it. And as we've discussed this morning, there are some instances where divorce, in order to remarry, or whatever the case may be, I think adultery is committed. But I do think under some circumstances, divorce is, and I wrestled with this word, I started off with acceptable, and I'm like, no, I don't like that. But in, un, under some circumstances, I settled with this word, divorce is permissible. Yet there's no reason why the couple should not attempt to work things out for the sake of the children, which we didn't even cover today at all. That's a, another sermon for another day. We also didn't say much about abuse. Quickly, I think there's abuse of a physical, spiritual, or emotional level, maybe other ways. I think that that fits under First Corinthians 7 category as well. Yet it shouldn't be done without an attempt at reconciliation, in my opinion. In fact, none of this should be done haphazardly. But I I know divorces that occur in the church probably happens a lot more than we realize. But I think for those who are or are not married, we should gather those victims of divorce to us and love them as best we can. The world is an imperfect place, y'all. We are, as we said at the outset, we are a broken people. We are broken jars of clay. But I firmly believe that Christ knows and understands when things in our lives go south. It's what we do with the rest of our lives that counts. How will we respond after a setback such as divorce? How will we help others through it as the church? We can only do it with God's help and by listening to what he tells us to do. My question as we close this morning is, are we ready to do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you and ask your blessings upon us as we struggle with life. <clears throat> we are a culture that is broken, Lord. I don't say that proudly. It's a matter of factly, but you knew that. And I just ask you, if you would, to help us as your church to stand out, to stand away from the world, to be separate and apart from it, to live as you would have us live, but to help others see that there is a better way to live. Would you bless us to that end? We ask you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.